is we're going to talk about today how God redeems our suffering. I know in my life, I've seen God do great things before. I've seen many miracles in my life, and so I know that he is a miracle-working God. And I want to ask you a question, just as we start, a very simple question. Have you ever had something in life that didn't go as you planned? Silly question, right? Of course, every one of us have had those moments in life where something didn't go as planned. It could be something like the failure to get a job that you thought was a sure thing, or it could be the unexpected diagnosis of an illness that caused major life change, or it could be even the sudden onset of a pandemic, right? We've all had things in life that made our lives go in unplanned directions. I know a simple thing in my family's life just a few years ago, and I know this is a simple thing, but hopefully it'll help illustrate what I'm talking about, was when Andy was applying for grad school, we were pretty certain he was going to get in. He had great grades. He had you know, great experience, and everything on the resume looked great. We knew that the spaces were very limited to get into PT school, but we still thought, man, it's a sure deal. It's going to happen, and he didn't get in. And so that moment became very disappointed for him, and it became very disappointing for us because how, how could that happen? Well, of course, he got in the next year, but when he, he, did, he got that first notice, I looked at him and I said, Look, Andy, I said, here's, here's what I believe, man. God's got this, and for some reason, he knows it's best that you didn't get in this year. Now, the more that I've looked back on that now being a few years away from that, the more I'm convinced that the advice that I gave to Andy was true. Well, that first year when he wasn't in grad school, I mean, he got married and was able to settle into married life. And I'm here to tell you, it's probably a whole lot easier not being in grad school to get married. And now when I look at it and think that he's getting ready to graduate this coming spring, I'm going to tell you, I believe it's going to be a whole lot easier to graduate this spring than it would have been this past spring. You know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine finishing out rotations and trying to graduate in the middle of a pandemic that people were trying to figure out, I don't know how it would have been. I believe this next spring, it's going to be a whole lot easier. And even when it comes to getting a job, most likely he'll have a job waiting this coming spring that this past spring would not have been there. And so I look, that's a simple example, but it reminds me that God's got the things that even disappoint us. In fact, it tells me this, that's a, a really simple reminder of a very big thing, which is this, that God redeems our suffering. In other words, God is at work through our difficulties for our good and for his glory. No disappointment is devastating in God's hands. No tragedy is overwhelming in God's hands. No surprise is unwanted in the hands of God. In fact, what we will see today is often the things that we see as devastating, unwanted, surprising, disappointing are simply tools in the hands of God to complete his perfect plan for our lives and for the world as a whole. Let's never forget that God is working out a plan, right? He is working out a plan. From the beginning of time, we saw a few weeks ago that God ultimately had a plan of being in relationship with humanity, the pinnacle of his creation. Yes, he wants us to work with him in the world as he told mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Yes, he told us to tend the earth and subdue it. Yes, he wants us to join us in the work that he is doing. But let's never forget his ultimate plan is to be in relationship with his people. But this is what we know, mankind blew it. Mankind sinned and broke that relationship with God, but yet God still sought to help mankind be in relationship with him and sought to help humanity be restored and fulfill its purpose. We saw as God was working to restore mankind's relationship where God made a promise to Abraham. Y'all remember that, right? And a promise to Abraham to bless him and that through his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. As you read the entirety of the scripture, it becomes very clear that the fulfillment of that promise is the coming of the Savior, the coming of Jesus Christ, 
who would offer his life to pay for our sins, who would offer to all the opportunity to have one's relationship with God restored. We know that Abraham received this promise when both he and Sarah were well beyond typical childbearing years, but God worked miraculously, and Sarah bore Isaac in her old age. God worked as only he could to keep his promise and his plans alive through Isaac. We also saw where then God tested Abraham's faith and said, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. And Abraham, by faith, went to do that. And then at the last moment, what did God do? He said, Abraham, stop. I don't want you to sacrifice Isaac. What I'm going to do instead, I'm going to provide a substitute. And so God provided a ram to be sacrificed in his place. And in the process, he kept his plan unbroken through Abraham's family. And he ultimately pointed us to the sacrifice that would come, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who would be the sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. Now, then last week, we saw where God worked in Isaac's son, Jacob. He worked in Jacob's life to change him, to give him a new identity, and ultimately brought Jacob back to God's original plan when he told Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. You see, God's plan continued, even at times through very difficult situations and in spite of sinful people. We will see the same truth play out today in the scripture as we look at one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, to see how God continued to work, to see how God's plans are unbroken. Now, let me quickly set the stage for our text today. As I said, Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, the second to youngest, in fact. Joseph was also Jacob's favorite. Now, here's what you would think. You would think after, you know, Jacob had experienced what it's like to have favoritism in his family, that he wouldn't do the same, right? But that's not so. Jacob went on ahead and he showed favoritism and he showed favoritism to Joseph. Now, that became a real problem when Joseph had two dreams, two dreams that he eventually shared with his family. And in these dreams, it seemed to indicate that one day that his brothers, his older brothers, and even his father would one day bow down to him. Now, you can only imagine how Joseph's brothers received this. They didn't receive it very well. Many of you may know the story, but if you don't, let me go ahead and share this with you because what happened next was this, that Joseph's brothers found an opportunity and sold him into slavery and then told their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Now, what his brothers thought in that moment was surely this is the last we're going to see of our cocky, annoying little brother. But as a result of their actions, Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt in the house of Potiphar. And in Potiphar's house, he became a model slave. And he excelled to the point that Potiphar put him in charge of his whole house. That is, until Potiphar's wife took a liking to him and tried to seduce Joseph. But Joseph resisted her advances, and what was her reaction to that? Well, she got mad, and she tried to claim that Joseph had tried to rape her, and so he was thrown in prison unjustly. Now, in prison, Joseph became a model prisoner, even being put in charge of the other prisoners by the jailer. And to me, I, I see that as pretty incredible. But while in prison, Joseph also meets a cupbearer and a baker. They both have these dreams that Joseph interprets correctly. And to move things along, what eventually happens is this, is that the Pharaoh of Egypt has these disturbing dreams and he wants these dreams interpreted, but none of his wise men, none of his advisors could interpret the dream. And then one day the cupbearer remembers, oh, hey, when I was in prison, I met this guy named Joseph and he interpreted my dream and the baker's dream correctly and maybe he can help you. And so the Pharaoh calls Joseph, who by the hand of God and by the miraculous powers of God, interprets Pharaoh's dreams, telling Pharaoh of a coming seven years of abundance, 
followed by seven devastating years of famine. Now, in response to Joseph's amazing God-given insight, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all the land. And in the process, Joseph administrates the land of Egypt incredibly and prepares them to endure the famine. And through his leadership, Joseph saves not only the people of Egypt, but Joseph also saves his own family, who eventually end up moving to Egypt to be taken care of by Joseph so that they too can survive the famine. I'm sure this was an interesting turn of events for his brothers who had initially sought to get rid of him. And the full events of Joseph's life are interesting. And so if you want the details, I encourage you to go back and read Genesis 37 through 49 and you'll see about Joseph's life. Joseph is, happens to be one of my favorite people in all the scriptures. And so go back and read that. And what I've just summarized really brings us to Genesis 37. It summarizes Genesis 37 through 49 and brings us to Genesis 50. And the context for this chapter is simply this, that their father Jacob has died. And after their father Jacob has died, the brothers get a little concerned. All right, now that dad has died, Joseph's probably going to seek revenge. You see, we know that Joseph loved his father Jacob, so he surely wouldn't have done anything to hurt us because he wouldn't have wanted to hurt his father. But now that, that dad has died, surely he will want revenge for us selling him into slavery. Let's read beginning in verse 15 of Genesis 50, their response. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Now let's pause for a moment just to recognize something that there are no doubt that these brothers are terrified. They obviously realize how horrible their actions to Joseph were. And by now, they probably have even heard of all that Joseph has went through because they sold him into slavery, the imprisonment and all of that. Even before he ascended, they probably assume at this point, Joseph had to go through so much, now he's going to want revenge. I'm also intrigued how they approach Joseph because, you know what, I don't read, as I read scripture, I don't see anywhere where Jacob ever went to his sons and said, you tell Joseph to forgive you. You tell Joseph not to do any harm. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. And so here's what I see. I can imagine a conversation with these brothers after their father died. Could you? They probably come and say, oh no, dad's dead. Dad's dead. Now, Joseph, he's probably going to want to kill us. What are we going to do? What, what are we going to do? Because Joseph, surely he's going, he's going to take our lives. So, 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 so what, are, what are we going to do in, in, in this moment? And so they go on and they say, well, maybe here's what we know. Man, he loved dad. So let's tell him that dad said not to harm us. And maybe he'll listen and maybe he won't kill us. Can't you imagine that conversation going on with these brothers? Here's what I know when the scripture records what the brothers said to Joseph and records that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I have every reason to believe this. The reason had he wept was this. He could not believe that his brothers believed they had to lie for him not to harm them. And his heart was broken that his brothers thought the only way that they would live is if they were, were to lie. Well, when we read next, it shows us something, though, very important about Joseph's life. Here's what we're going to learn about Joseph, that Joseph kept God as sovereign over his whole life. Look at Joseph's response to his brothers in the next verse. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
Now, I hope you get what Joseph is saying here. I mean, what would make sense to all of us is that Joseph would seek revenge to his brothers. Would that make sense to us? Shake your head this way. Yes. And why would that make sense to us? Here's why it would make sense to us. Because as humans, our first reaction to being done wrong is always seek revenge. Is it not? If it's not to seek revenge, let's at minimum know this. When somebody does something wrong against us, we want something bad to happen to them. Am I right? Yeah, that, that's our human reaction. Joseph's brothers obviously understood this human tendency because they just assumed that Joseph would seek revenge. But Joseph's statement is big here. When he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God, he is making this statement that he wants to live his life with God being in control, not him. That he wanted his actions to be driven by God, not by his own flesh or by his own tendencies. Joseph had actually already proven this in life. One of my favorite accounts of Joseph's life was actually when he faced Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him. If you read that account in chapter 37, you are left with every reason to believe that Joseph could have gotten away with an inappropriate relationship with her. We are truly led to believe that Joseph could have had an affair with Potiphar's wife and it would have went unnoticed. His response, though, to her seduction is a good example for all of us to follow. Look at what Joseph said in Genesis 39, 9. He, that is Potiphar, his owner, is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and what? Sin against God. Now, Joseph acknowledged how good Potiphar had been to him. But he recognized that the real reason that he was not going to have this inappropriate relationship was because he didn't want to sin against God. Joseph didn't say he wasn't going to do this because Potiphar had been so good to him. His motivation was greater than that. He knew it was wrong in God's eyes and God's will and, was, and, and, and pleasing God was going to be the driving force of his life. He wanted God to be sovereign over his whole life. Now, too often, you know what I see people do in our world today? People compartmentalize, there it is, compartmentalize their lives. You know what I mean by that? I mean, we come to church and we want to look all Christian-y and we want to look all godly and we want to do everything. We want to look good. And so we come to church because we want to be spiritual, right? We want to love God. We want to do all these things to say we love God. And then we walk out the doors to somehow have a moral life that looks anything different than what God would desire. We go out and somehow say, it's okay, I can come and I can look godly on Sunday morning and I can worship God. But then when I go out, it's okay for me to live the rest of my life independent of God. People somehow make this disconnect with their spiritual lives and their moral lives. And that should not be true for believers. You see, a true believer understands that God is sovereign over the entirety of his or her life. That's how Joseph felt. Therefore, he, even when it came to how he was going to deal with his brothers, he wasn't going to be driven by his own internal drive for revenge. He instead was going to be driven by God's desires, how God wanted him to treat his brothers. You see, I'm, I believe this. This attitude alone would change the world, would it not? Wouldn't this attitude alone change many lives even here this morning? If we would look and say, God is going to be sovereign over our entire life, how many lives would change? See, Joseph so believed in the sovereignty of God in his life that he wanted to do what God wanted. But he even lived beyond just God's sovereignty dictating his morality 
or his daily actions. He took it a step farther in this, in that Joseph saw God's purposes as greater than his comforts. Okay, look at what Joseph went on to say to his brothers in verse 20. He says, as for you, pointing at his brothers, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph clearly understood that what his brothers had done to him was wrong. He said as much. He says, you meant it evil against me. Joseph wasn't denying the reality of the situation. He wasn't even denying that what his brothers had done was wrong. He wasn't even denying that what he had been through was difficult. However, Joseph had a greater understanding of his life. He understood that what God did through their evil actions was put him in a place to save the lives of many people, that God had redeemed his suffering for a good purpose. Let's remember this. Had Joseph not been sold into slavery, he would not have been in Egypt, right? And if he'd not been in Egypt, he wouldn't have been in Potiphar's house. And if he hadn't been in Potiphar's house, he wouldn't have been falsely accused and he wouldn't have been in prison. And if he hadn't been in prison, he wouldn't have met a cupbearer and a baker. And if he hadn't met the cupbearer and the baker, he wouldn't have been able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And if he hadn't been able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, the famine would have overtaken the land of Egypt and it would also have killed many people and not only many people, it would have killed his very own family. I want you to think about that. Let's remember it was through his family through whom God was working to bless the world. And so Joseph understood that his suffering truly allowed him to be where he needed to be. This perspective allowed Joseph to not be bitter, but to instead rejoice in what had happened to him. He wasn't going to be bitter because he understood that God had a greater purpose than just his individual comfort. Now, I don't know when Joseph came to this realization. Was it all after the fact or did Joseph have this confidence the entire time? Not sure, but I do believe it is safe to say that because Joseph had such a high view of God's sovereignty, that he was able at every turn to not be overwhelmed by his circumstances, but to always excel wherever he found himself. It's hard for me to believe that Joseph would have had such an attitude apart from a complete confidence in God and a confidence that God was completing his purposes. Even if God's purposes meant his discomfort, Joseph was still willing to serve God and surrender to his will. What at least is very clear at the end was Joseph understood that God had worked for good and that was more important than any difficulty that Joseph had had to endure. Now, having such a view where God's purposes were greater than his comfort also allowed this next statement to be true for Joseph, that Joseph forgave those who did evil against him. Look at this next verse. He said, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Man, what a great example by Joseph, is it not? When we might expect Joseph to finally get revenge on his brothers, he actually does the opposite. He assures them that they have nothing to fear. He promises to provide for their needs. And then he spends some time comforting them and reassuring them with his words. This is truly amazing because I have seen some people who said, I forgive you but then had nothing to do with the person they say they forgive because they actually haven't forgiven. Not so with Joseph. He so believed that what had happened to him was in God's sovereign plan that he was not going to hold ill feeling toward his brothers. I know that's a challenge to us, is it not? Because here's my experience in life. My experience in life typically is this, that if somebody gets mad at me, they don't ever give me a second chance. Y'all ever experienced that? And can we go ahead and be honest? Let's be fully honest. And when somebody does something to us, we have a hard time giving them a second chance. 
Shake our head, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the truth of who we are. That, that's our experience. That's who we are as humans. We have this tendency not to be want, want to hurt by people. And so if they do hurt us, we cut them off or we seek revenge. If we can learn like Joseph did to trust God's plan, then even when we are done wrong, we can trust that God is at work, that God is redeeming everything for his purpose. And then we can treat even those who come against us with love. We can forgive. We can live without heart feelings. And we can move beyond our desire even to have someone make it up to us because we really don't care anymore. We are simply trusting that God is at work. And let me reiterate. Joseph could ultimately do this because he knew that God's purposes prevailed, that not only his family and others were saved, but that God's plans were being accomplished. And since we know the Savior came from the family of Jacob, or might we say the family of Israel, we know it was important that Joseph's family was saved. It is sure that God's plans were unbroken, and that is what Joseph cared about the most. Now, having seen Joseph's example, let's take this a step further now. And see how Joseph's example of God's will and work in the world continue today. You know, we noted that Joseph kept God as sovereign over his life. And you know what Jesus taught us? You know what Jesus taught us? Jesus taught us that God is sovereign over life. Are you aware of that? Jesus said this in John 5, 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does that the son does likewise. Jesus even said that his life as the second person of the Godhead was dictated by the father, dictated by the sovereignty of God, that every action he did was guided by the father. Since Jesus was walking in the flesh, the Bible even says he was tempted as we are, but was without sin. And Jesus being one with the father perfectly followed the will of God. He set the example that we are to follow. And though we may not be perfect, Joseph's example shows us that if we keep God's sovereignty at the forefront of our lives, then we can also make the right choice, that we can do God's will and we can avoid many mistakes. We can make godly choices even when faced with temptation. We can let God be sovereign over us. And even remember this, if you are a believer today, The scripture teaches us that you even have the Holy Spirit to help you as you seek to follow God and let him be sovereign. Now, we also can look at Jesus and see where he too set the example that God's purposes were greater than his comfort. Think about these words of Jesus in Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about this. Jesus didn't come to earth for a life of ease. He didn't come to earth to be served. He came to serve and to ultimately give his life for us. When I think about Jesus, I'm reminded of how all the other religions of the world, which have false leaders, have leaders who are ultimately seeking to be served, but not with Jesus. He came to give his life for us. Joseph's life was a life, it was not a life of ease. It wasn't a life of ease. We could even say in a way, much of his life had to be filled with sacrifice so that in the end, many would be saved. But on a much greater scale and a grander scale, Jesus truly lived a life that was uncomfortable. He lived a life of sacrifice. He lived a life of being falsely accused and then truly gave his life to save many to fulfill God's plan. The reality of Jesus' sacrifice was this, 
that he gave his life for the possibility of the whole world being saved. He was beaten and crucified for your sin and my sin, for the sin of the world. And scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Then let's not forget that along the way, Jesus demonstrated that he forgave those who did evil against him. In Luke 23, it's the highest example as he hung on the cross and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, what made Jesus able to forgive was the fact that he truly understood that in the injustice he was suffering at the hands of those who opposed him, that God was working to save the world. Likewise, we have to have confidence in our lives that God is at work even in the difficult, even when people oppose who do evil to us, when bad things happen. And, 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 I, and, and as I say that, some of you may ask, well, well, Brother Scott, can we really have the same confidence that Joseph had? Brother Scott, can we really have the same confidence that Jesus exemplified? I'm going to say back to all of you today, absolutely. We can have the same confidence. And how do I know that? Because these familiar words in Romans 8, 28, you've heard them before, have you not? Let me share them with you again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. These are quoted all the time, right? How many of you would say, I've probably heard this verse quoted a hundred times in my life or more, all right? We have, we've heard it. You've probably heard me quote it several, right? I've quoted it several times in my preaching. We've heard it several times to comfort people in difficult moments and to assure them that when bad things happen, that everything will be okay. But there are times I think we forget a couple qualifiers in this verse. You realize there are two qualifiers in this verse, right? The first one being this, the first one is, this promise is for those who love God. I hope you know this, all things don't work for good for those who don't love God. Why? Because they are not striving for the things of God. In fact, for those who oppose God, God will ultimately oppose them. Don't forget, there is wrath to come for those who fail to place their faith in God. And so if you wanna be on the good side of things, you must first love God. Y'all got that? But then it also says it's for those that are called according to his purpose. This is key because as we saw with Joseph, for things to fulfill God's purposes at times, it meant difficulty for his lives. And I'm gonna say this, it means difficulty for our lives sometimes. What happened to Joseph was ultimately only good because it fulfilled God's plan. I'm gonna tell you, folks, being sold into slavery was good only because it put him in Egypt, not because slavery is a good thing, Right? Being falsely accused and thrown in prison is not a good thing in and of itself. It was a good thing because it put Joseph in a place where he would need to be to meet a cupbearer and a baker who would help him be where he ultimately needed to be, to be in the presence of, of the Pharaoh where he could interpret his dream. None of those things on their own was good. They were only good as they were being used for God's good purposes. Do you get that? Likewise with Jesus. What happened to Jesus, hear me, was only good because it fulfilled God's plan. I'm going to head, head and tell you, there's nothing good about someone innocent being crucified apart from the fact that God was saving the world. Likewise, if you love God and are seeking his purpose, you can have confidence that all things are working for good, ultimately for your good, even if in the moment, and maybe even this side of heaven, things don't turn out so good for you. Does that make sense? 
Because hear me when I say this, all right? Don't believe the preachers that tell you if you love God and you're called according to his purposes, everything's going to come up rosy in your life, that you're going to be happy and healthy and wealthy and all those things. That's a lie from scripture. I'm here to tell you, it will ultimately turn out for good, right? Yes, hear me. You might not see it this side of heaven, but God is working out a perfect plan. Let's think even for a moment about Paul who wrote the words found in Romans 8, 28. Life for him was not always easy. In fact, there was a time when Paul, as part of his ministry, was preparing to go to Jerusalem. And so he called for some elders, and I'm sure he called them for prayer and support. And listen to what he said to them in Acts 20. He said, now from Miletus, he went to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, look at this, in every city, that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." Think about this. Paul looked at his life and he said as he moved forward that this is what God had revealed to him. That God had revealed to him, here's what is waiting as you move forward. There's going to be imprisonments. There's going to be afflictions. There's going to be hardships of all sorts ahead of you, Paul. That's what I want you to know in your life. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. But what Paul said of that is this. What is important to me is not whether my life is easy, not what people do to me, but what's important is, is God's will to be done in my life. And for him, it was to fulfill that call to testify to the gospel of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul was ready for whatever in order to accomplish God's purpose for his life. Let me say this, Paul most likely could even move forward with hope and joy, even though difficulty awaited because he had experienced how God had worked through difficulty in the past. One of the most popular, maybe you remember, is when he was in Philippi. If you remember when he was in Philippi, he was arrested and he was thrown in jail unjustly there in Philippi. But in that jail, trusting in the Lord, Paul and Silas sang praises to God. And in the process, if you know the story, you know what happened, right? The Philippian jailer and his whole family gave his life to Jesus Christ. And Paul looked at that and he said, you know what? In the past, I've seen when I've been, been imprisoned. I've seen in the past when I've had infliction. And I've seen how God has worked through those difficulties to save souls. And Paul says, if I go forward, if my whole life is miserable, if I'm in prison, if I'm afflicted, that's okay. As long as God's will is done in my life, I'm ready, Lord, for whatever you bring on. Because he realized this, that numerous times God had redeemed his suffering for a greater purpose and he believed God was going to redeem his suffering in the future for also a great purpose. Now here's ultimately what I want you to see today. That God's plan is unbroken. And God works out his plan and as he does that, he redeems our, our suffering. He redeems the suffering of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so here's the question I have for you today as we close. I have several questions for you today. First is this. Do you trust God is sovereign over your whole life? 
I, I want to ask you, those who have joined us personally this, this morning and those who have joined us at home, you've taken out time today to say, God is important to me. You've taken time out of your day to say, I want to worship a holy God, and I believe he's sovereign enough that I'm worshiping him today. But I want to ask you this question. When you walk out that door, when you click off your computer, and our worship time is over, is God still going to be sovereign of your life? Are you going to walk through and say, I believe God is so in control of every area of my life, every decision I make this week, everything I do is going to be driven not by what's internally in me, not what is by my nature, but what the holy God wants me to do. And I'm going to live by his sovereignty today. Are you going to do that? It's a key question, is it not? God would challenge you today to let him be sovereign over your entire life. Second, let me ask you this. Do you see God's purposes as greater than your comfort? This week, are you only going to praise God if everything goes right? Are you going to only praise God if everything goes just as you had planned? Or even if you face difficulty this week, even if you face uncertainty, even if somebody this week comes against you unfairly, are you going to say, God, I so trust in your sovereignty that even in this moment, my comfort's not what's important. God, what's important is that your will would be done. And so, God, in this moment, I'm even going to act according to your will because I want you to be glorified even in the midst of my discomforts. Well, today you say, God, your purposes are greater than my comfort. Also, let me ask you, do you forgive those who have done evil against you? Many times the difficulties we face come at the hands of others. But if God's at work, then you can forgive. And trust me when I say this, our world would be a much better place if we could learn to forgive. If we could even get to the point to say, God, I so trust your sovereignty. I so trust that what you're doing, I can forgive those that come against me because I even believe this, that you're at work even in this. And so I can forgive because, God, you are in control. I'll trust you someday to get vengeance, not me. I put it all in your hand. Can you do that today? I don't know what each of you are going through this morning. Some surely have things that you are questioning. Some have difficult moments. I hope today, though, that you are loving God through those things, letting him control your life and actions, seeking his will more than your comfort, because if you do, I have no doubt about this, that God will redeem whatever suffering you are going through for good. Most notably, to help someone else even come to know Jesus as Savior through your witness as you live a life that reflects the truth of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. Let me ask you today, are you today willing to let God redeem your suffering? Whatever you're suffering today, would you put it in his hands? Even as we come to this time of invitation, I'm going to remind you this morning, the altar's open. Maybe you have something in your life that's hard, a difficult moment going on. Let me tell you, put it in the hands of God this morning. If you need to kneel at this altar, it's here. You come, give it to your holy God because he loves you and he wants to work in your life for good. If you'll turn to him and you love him, give it in his hands. He's at work. If you need somebody to pray with you, in fact, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put on my mask. I'll be standing right here. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'll be here. You come. We'll pray because I want you to know today there's a God that loves you. And there are people that love you. Trust it to him today. Are you ready to give it to the Lord? Let him redeem your suffering this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow into your presence today. Again, Father, thanking you once again for your word that every week reminds us of your goodness and reminds us that you're in control, reminds us that your plans are unbroken. Help us today to understand that you are even redeeming our suffering and that even in it, you're working for good. That, Father, we can trust our difficulties to you. Help us this morning, Father, because, again, our confession is it's hard to do these things. But, Father, we want to give them to you. So bless this time of invitation. Help us to put all things in your hand this morning, I pray. And as I pray these things, I pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.